This is Stories from Every Day, a podcast about finding the stories in the world around us. This is episode one. Today we're talking with Elizabeth Lord, a professional storyteller. Thanks for joining me. Just be honest. There's no reason for you to change the details. Honesty is compelling. But as a bartender, there's lots of things that happen because you're mixing strangers in a room with alcohol. I rode down the road and decided better to get off main streets because we were certain the cops were probably after us. Welcome to Stories from Every Day. This is episode one. I'm Liam Cosma, and I'm also very excited to get this project off the ground and that you've decided to tune in. I wanted to start by telling you a little about the podcast and how it got started, and then I'll tell you about the first batch of episodes before getting into our first conversation. So why start this podcast? So let me start with the fact that I am naturally an introvert. When in public or at a party, I've always been incredibly uncomfortable starting conversations with strangers or joining a group. I'm the guy standing in the back corner at a table holding a drink, so he has something to do with his hands, um, kind of on his own. And then one day about a year ago, I decided to make a change and to make more of an effort to engage people in conversation and to get to know the people that I encounter every day. About the same time, I stumbled across a story about how in the 21st century, people are kind of naturally sorting themselves into like-minded groups, both physically and online, and that we create echo chambers around ourselves. I also realized that I was guilty of this very thing. By going about my life without engaging in my community and with those that I encountered every day, I was kind of isolating myself. So I began to venture outside my comfort zone. You can hear about the circumstances behind how I've met certain people in the episodes that follow. Suffice it to say that over the past few months, I've met some amazing people and have had some incredible conversations. It struck me after a while that everyone that I talked to had stories to tell that I found incredible that they themselves found mundane. To them, it was their life and rather unremarkable. To me, their stories were fascinating. This led to a realization that we are surrounded each and every day with incredible stories that just pass us by. I wanted to catch some of them and, and share them with you all. And therefore, Stories From Every Day was born. I have to say right up front that I'm no professional. I'm not Terry Gross, Ira Glass, or one of my other favorites, CGP Gray from YouTube. I began this whole thing by Googling digital recorder for podcast and used the same method to find decent microphones. I began paying a small subscription fee for audio editing software, which I then had to figure out how to use. This is a new experience for me, but one that I'm incredibly passionate about and hope that that passion th shows through to you all, the listeners. I hope to improve as time goes by. Despite the fact that I'm learning as I go, I owe it to every listener who chooses to give me a little bit of their time and life by listening to these episodes the very best that I can, and I will do my very best. I have to say that some amazing people chose to participate in these first few episodes. A Vietnam veteran, a professional psychic and part-time volunteer grandparent, a documentary filmmaker, a World War II POW, 
and a woman who spent her childhood in a Japanese internment slash concentration camp, among others. This has been a wonderful experience that has broadened my horizons considerably. And now, without further ado, let's get to the very first episode. I'm so excited for you to hear from Elizabeth Lord. Elizabeth is a professional storyteller in Olympia, Washington. I met her at one of her events, and after a brief email exchange, she agreed to be on the show. Stories from Every Day was still just a pipe dream at that point, but I thought that if I'm going to do this, she'd be the perfect first episode. Elizabeth has spent her professional career conveying her stories and helping others to see the power of storytelling. Her words really laid the foundation for this podcast. The interview that follows picks up after I've asked her if she would mind starting out with one of her stories. I really hope you enjoy it. I put together one-woman shows where I mine my life, you know, like the miner might be looking for coal or gold, and I'm mining it for stories, and I get a list of stories, and I figure out a theme, and find more stories to fit the theme, and then I put on a show, and I tell the stories publicly, and I feel like each time you tell a story, you you give it away. It's, it's a gift you've given away, and someone can repeat that story to someone else, say, hey, I heard this story, like you did already. Yeah. And somehow, when I put them in shows, and I do that, I feel like they've been told and it's over and they're it's done and so sometimes when I'm struggling to think of what story to tell it's because I'm trying to think of a story that hasn't been part of a show yeah but then I have to realize there's all these other stories that you've never heard that lots of people haven't heard you know it's it makes so much sense though when when you think about you know stories that way they're they're told they're done yeah um, i gave it away i don't have it anymore yeah in a sense it's interesting i'll tell you an occupational story unrelated to my performance occupation after 2 years of struggling as an artist, trying to get gigs, trying to create work opportunities, teaching here and there, and struggling to pay rent each month. It's very stressful, hustling as an artist. I realized I needed some other form of income to supplement the art income something that was more stable, something that would not uh, take up too much time, Uh, something at that time I was gigging a lot in schools and in daytime activities, and so I needed something that wasn't a day job, something at night. And through friends of friends learned that there was a bar downtown that needed a door person. And so I went there and they told me what the job was and I became the door guy at a bar and worked the door one night a week, sometimes two nights a week. And it 
And I thought I'd just do that for a while, but instead I kept doing it until eventually I was doing more than watching the door. I was a bar back, you know, which is someone that buses the dishes and washes the dishes and so forth and so supports the bartenders. And then I was, um, then I was a bartender. And I continued to be a bartender a couple nights a week. And it's good because it gives me peace of mind. I don't have to worry about the fact that the philanthropic organization that called me on the phone the other day to see if I would be their keynote speaker decided against it and they're going with a former prosecuting attorney. But as a bartender, there's lots of things that happen because you're mixing strangers in a room with alcohol. And things happen, sometimes funny, sometimes violent, sometimes just strange. And one of my jobs as a bartender is to refuse service to people whom I feel are overly intoxicated. If they've already had too much to drink, I can't serve them alcohol legally by Washington state law. It's also not a good idea. One, you don't want them to do something violent or weird. Two, you don't want to clean up their vomit that might result in over-serving them. All kinds of reasons. You don't want a drunk driver, so on and so forth. Well, this fellow and his friend came in one night and he was clearly intoxicated. His friend was uh, tipsy. And I knew immediately, because I watched them enter and how they walked and how they behaved that they were intoxicated. And when they finally made their way to the front of the line to order, I declined service. I said, I can't, I can't serve you tonight. Why? Very angry. Because you're intoxicated, I can't give you anything more tonight. And I always stop there. I'm not going to engage with someone who's drunk or they're usually belligerent and and I just turned to the next person, but they would not let it rest. They kept wanting to know why, and they started to yell at me, and they called me a variety of names, and they were incensed, and I told them, you need to leave. That's often the next step, is to tell people to leave. They wouldn't leave, and they kept pointing and yelling, and their volume escalated. But his friend, who was less drunk, he could see that those around them were looking at them like, why don't you just go? And so he began to corral his friend to try to get him to go out the door. And I stood firm and pointed towards the door with arm outstretched and said, go. So they eventually made their way towards the door and I watched them go, as did everyone that was present because they had caused a scene. And about two or three steps before the door, the drunken man who was most upset, he turned, he pulled down his pants, he grabbed his genitals, and he waggled them at me. He shook his penis at me. And then he pulled his pants up turned and left with his friend. 
I looked back at my customers that were sitting at the bar, and I said, I think that man just waggled his penis at me. And they said, he did. And I had a nice big belly laugh about it. I'd never had anyone do that before. <laughs> not in jest, and certainly not in anger. And it made me think, what was that about? Like, why was that his insult to me? Maybe he's just drunk. Maybe he's proud of his penis. Maybe it means something uglier than that. I don't know. But I'm glad that I'm at a point in my age and wisdom that I wasn't upset by it. I just thought it was hilarious. It's a great story. I mean, <laughs> not a great experience, but I'm incredibly impressed how you take everyday experiences and package them up there's a beginning, middle, and an end. You find the humor in them. You find the kind of the tragedy in them, all these emotions throughout the story, and then wrap it up um, in a way that really means something. And it's clear you've taken away something away from them. And, you know, and as the listener, we can take something away from that story, whether it's, you know, what you took away or something else completely. And, uh, that's awesome. And, and interesting imagery um, with that one. <laughs> yeah. So you're, um, you're a professional storyteller, professional talker. Yeah. Um, I wanted to call the, my website uh, Olympia Storyteller or Storyteller or something or other, but that domain name was taken. <laughs> and I tried to think of what else, what is the euphemism for what I do, or what's another way of describing that I'm a professional storyteller, professional talker? It wasn't taken yet, so. So there you go, and, and <laughs> a little more go. broad than, than just storytelling. Yeah. Um, but what, well first, how, how'd you get into, how'd you get into that? Oh. How, how did that become a career? Well, I've always wanted to be a performer as a child. I've always enjoyed um, attention. And I started doing acting and theater, you know, t taking parts in a play and getting on stage and you wear a costume and you memorize a script and you perform a play. And I did theater all through uh, high school and, and I thought about what will I do with that interest? The common wisdom of the day was that to be a professional actor was a very hard road to take, that there were so many actors, you know, so many people, that basically it was a life of rejection until you finally got that one part. And I also knew at the same time that in a lot of especially in television and film, uh, probably also true in, in higher-end plays and Broadway and so forth, that the way you look is important. And there was a, there's a, a standard of beauty that exists that I didn't possess. 
I've always been chubby. And I thought, oh, I don't think, I mean, I'd be lucky if I got cast as the pal <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. And I thought that will be a hard thing for me to break through. And it will be too stressful. And I'd already dealt with a lot of that in high school of, 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 of eating and not eating and so on and so forth. And I thought, I don't want to fight that fight. But I do want to be a performer, and I do like the stage, you know. I don't want to become a juggler. You know, I don't want to be a clown. I want to talk and move and emote. In my senior year in high school, I uh, learned of a performance at the local library. They would put on shows. They had a theater there, and they would have traveling performances come through. And it, that particular night, it was a group of storytellers. And I hadn't thought of storytelling as an end for entertainment. It was something maybe you did with your family at bedtime or maybe it was something for children in the library. But I went to the show and they were all adults on stage, older adults, and they told stories. And most of the stories were folk tales. And I was enchanted. It's like... Uh, the thing I can compare it to is when you read a novel and you imagine the characters and the locations and the things in the story, you make up those pictures in your head as the, list, as the reader. And so that book really be becomes your book because you've made up all the pictures and all the images yourself. And when you see a film that's been made of that book, it's all wrong. That's not how you pictured that character. And then later when you go back to the book, you can't, your images are lost because now you've got the film images because visual is very powerful. But that was fascinating to me that as you listen to a story, just as when you read, you make up all these images in your head and it becomes your story. But it seemed even more powerful than reading because it was a live person standing there, talking to me, making eye contact with me, which was something we don't do in the theater. In the theater, there's the fourth wall, what they call the fourth wall, this imaginary wall between you and the audience, and you don't acknowledge the audience, and the audience gets to be like a voyeur and, and look in at the life of whatever these characters are doing. Whereas storytelling is more of a dialogue, even though it's one-sided. So I saw these storytellers and I thought, I want to do that. I want to do that. And that, uh, see, the September after I graduated from high school, I went away to college and immediately pursued the idea of becoming a storyteller. And I took a class that had to do with oral histories and oral storytelling was the focus of the class, believe it or not. And that set me on a trajectory to becoming a professional storyteller. In town here in Olympia, there was a local storytelling guild where people who were enthusiastic about the art of storytelling got together, uh, I guess it was about monthly, and they would tell stories. And the focus at that point was folk tales, to reinvigorate these folk tales that have been put in books, but no one really tells them for entertainment anymore. And so we would find these old stories, not just Grimm Brothers, not, not just the Hansel and Gretel and the Cinderella's, 
but all kinds of stories that are out there. And I did that for a long time, and that was primarily when I would gig, I would go to places and tell folk tales. And then uh, one day I told someone the story of when I ran for homecoming queen in high school, only to find out that that was against school rules. You couldn't campaign for homecoming queen. You were supposed to just be chosen. But I campaigned, and I did pretty well. I got to the top ten. At any rate, they really responded well to that. So I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll tell that on stage sometime, and so I did. And that was in the late 90s. And so I just started, uh, then I started doing those solo shows and telling stories that were all compiled from moments from my life. And it was interesting to get to a point where uh, I can now tell personal stories at um, commissioned performances now too. Whereas before, I didn't think my personal stories were worthy to tell to someone who's paying me. But now I'm like, wait a second. We all have this shared humanity. This might be of, of interest to them, you know. But there is something magical about sharing your story and having the listener nod their head because they know they were there. They were that fat girl in junior high or they were whatever commonality there is. Um, and it, it's uh, helpful for both teller and listener. Helpful for me to unburden my story if it's also a hard story and helpful for the listener to know they're not so unique and they're not alone and that we have this like I said, shared humanity. And that's what I love. It's my passion. And yeah. That's what I love. I was, I was personally, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that, that the folk tales you were told were absolutely wonderful as well, but it, it um, is so inspirational to see um, every time you tell a story, you kind of give those personal experiences and, and kind of unload those things. Um, and I also really appreciate with some of your current projects um, how you're encouraging others to kind of do the same and creating amateur storytellers out of out of you know people in the community and, and encouraging that. Um, so you do the the one I'm familiar with um, that I have firsthand experience with is Story Oli, um, where you encourage people to tell their own stories. Can can you just Give me kind of a background on that and how that came about and the purpose and, and what it's been like to see people, I don't know, do this. I don't know. Well, um, first thing that happened is This American Life, that show. And, uh, well, Garrison Keillor had always been telling stories, but most of them were fiction. And This American Life popped up, a radio show with people telling stories from their life and Gradually, over time, personal storytelling, what I call performative oral storytelling, grew in popularity. There's the StoryCorps project. I don't know if you know about that. I, I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. Fascinating, everyone. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and Snap Judgment and Moth, Moth Radio Hour, which is how we, we format Storioli like the Moth. 
uh, which is a story slam. Well, something, you know, I'd been doing these shows with personal stories and I don't know, it just, this shift happened in the country <laughs> culturally where the, uh, what do you call those books that you write about your life? Um, not autobiographies, but they're called memoirs. Memoirs became very popular, you know, and and suddenly, what I was doing was very popular. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine named Amy Shepard. She was interested in seeing a story slam in town, and she just put a word out on Facebook. She said. I think I'd like to get a story slam started at the Rhythm and Rye, a venue, a bar venue downtown. Does anyone, do you think anyone would be interested? And I said, oh, yes, you bet your britches they'd be interested. These people and these people, and there's this group I know that would support it, and there's the Storytelling Guild people that would be thrilled about it, and there's, and she said, you know so much about storytelling, and I don't. I like listening to stories. Um, but I have the access to the venue, so we paired up. So she was the one that initiated Storioli. I have to give credit to her. I'm the one that got the word out and got the audience in the door to come and tell stories. Some of the tellers you've probably heard are people that are in the Storytelling Guild mm -hmm. and and other just ordinary, ordinary folk telling their life story, you know. And what else have I done? Oh, I teach storytelling workshops uh, from time to time. Um, people hire me to teach them storytelling skills. You'd be surprised the kind of people that want um, storytelling skills. It's like I've, I've worked with a group of lobbyists once, and it makes sense. Absolutely. You know, if you can tell a compelling story, then you'll get your message across and hopefully get what you want, you know? Right. That's, is there... Out of all of your experience getting people, you know, encouraging people to open up and tell their stories and teaching them storytelling skills, can you think of a particular moment or two where, does anyone stand out where somebody made a connection or, or connected with their audience in a way that, that was particularly impactful? Well, this last workshop I taught, what was it, 10 people, which is a great number to have for something like that. I take people through certain steps, questions and answers to help them mine their life. And we were focusing at the point on stories. One of the easiest ways to help people know that they have stories is to give them prompts, questions that they may not have thought of before. So the prompt was think of a significant event in your life that involved another family member. Um, how old were you? Why was that other family member there? How do you feel about that person then? And how do you feel about that person now? You know, and it helps people think about, like you were saying before, this person talking about being a, a valet when it's just mundane work. And they're like, well, I always used to go to the summer concert series with my aunt. That's boring. Oh, but wait, where were you? What year was this? You know, you, you got to see who perform? You know, there's all kinds of things that can come out when you ask people these questions. And so that happened 
at the last workshop, um, a woman who had never not was not a performer, never thought of herself as a performer, never thought she would ever have any comfort being in front of people on stage. That's a big thing. That's one thing. Storytelling is a great way to help teach public speaking because it's uh, you're not having to recite facts that you've memorized, but rather just a natural story, and you can learn how to be in front of people. But anyway, she. Um, You'd asked er also earlier uh, what was one of my favorite stories that was told at Storioli. And this was one of them. She got up there and she told a story of um, her encounter with the Green River Killer, which she didn't know that's who that person was at the time, but she told this harrowing story of living in Seattle in the early 80s uh, near the market. And I guess that part of town was a really bad, sketchy, crime-ridden part of town at that time. And taking a very scary cab ride with what turned out to be not a real cab driver. Um, and telling people what had happened and being poo-pooed. Like all the men she told about what had happened. She eventually had leapt out of the cab. He rolled over her arm. Uh, she escaped, and she told her boyfriend, and he was like, well, it was just some random guy, and she told the cab company, like, oh, someone's just trying to steal our fares, and she told the police, and like, if we investigated everything that happened down there, we'd never get anything done. And when, But she learned that when she told women, other women, about what had happened, they all knew immediately why she jumped out of that car. And, and I told her afterwards, and then, then later, I, just to finish her story, uh, she saw a news report, and they had these suspects, and there were these pictures, and there was the guy that she had ridden in the car with. But I told her afterwards, you know, I said, you told a big story. You know, yes, you told the story about getting in this cab, and this and this, this happened first, and this happened next, and this happened next. But you told the big story, which is a story that a lot of women have, where they are not listened to. You know, they're disregarded as overreacting, overly emotional. And uh, that's uh, an experience that a lot of women have had, you know. And I don't, when you can recognize those big universal truths inside an or ordinary experience, well, that wasn't so ordinary, but you know, an ordinary person's experience. It really can, I think it gives meaning, greater meaning to one's life, or you realize these themes that exist in stories, it, you know, in Shakespeare or classic Greek tragedy or all of these things, there's a reason. It's because it's the human experience, and they happen over and over again, you know. So I just, yeah, she was amazing. She said, well, no, I owe it to you for that workshop. And I said, no, 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 you were fantastic. That really stood out. She didn't tell the story that we practice in the workshop. She found something else to talk about. And that reminds me of what what you were saying earlier about you feel like once you've once you've shared that story once you've unloaded and given it away it's time to find something else um and and you know it's it's 
um, there's so many to share that, that you can move on to kind of the next experience. Um, I, I feel like that's kind of what she was feeling almost, you know, she shared this, it was out there mm -hmm. and now it's, you know, yeah. And once you realize that you have all these experiences and any one of them, you know, can be an amazing story with, with some sort of human theme, you know, now move yeah. on to the next. And what you just said about, you know, what we've said about sharing it and you give it away. A lot of artists, a lot of writers, a lot of people, they won't tell their friends whatever story it is. They have to keep it bottled in because once they share it, it'll be gone, you know. They have to keep it in there and wait for that moment when they're going to write it down or do whatever it is they're going to do with it. Um, I have this, uh, I don't know if it's a metaphor, analogy, about stories. It has to do with pie. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. <laughs> the pie. I love this analogy. Okay, you probably read about it. In I the, did, but yeah, I would yeah. love to hear. Well, just that you can think of every story in your life as a pie. And depending on the experience and what the nature is of that story, the pie's filled with yummy things, or maybe it's filled with nurturing things, or maybe it's filled with awful things, like bolts and motor oil, as opposed to strawberries. At any rate, the story's a pie. Each time you tell it, you give a slice away. And that slice you give to them is something that they can have and keep and carry and now there's less pie for you and each time you tell you give another slice away until you get down to hopefully just the right amount for you to carry if it's a traumatic story which is when storytelling is often really important you as you give each slice away it's less heavy it's less burdensome it's, you don't have to carry that around with you as much. You lighten your load, and it can be quite cathartic. But if it's a delicious pie, like something wonderful happened, and you tell too many people too quickly, you'll look down at an empty pie plate, and you won't have anything to savor yourself. So I think about storytelling that way. And uh, I've given out a lot of delicious pies. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of empty pie plates. I think a lot of people are better for it. Um, <laughs> no, I love that analogy. Maybe I could tell you another story. That would be fun. Let's see. Okay. When I was in college, I met a guy that owned a motorcycle. And he was pretty cool. And I was smitten. And we were in the same class. He was a couple years older than I was. But he was so cool because he not only did he have a motorcycle, but he had long hair and he rolled cigarettes. And I didn't smoke, but there was something, I saw him once in the parking lot, his motorcycle was on its center stand or, or it was parked in such a way that he could lean on it and he was leaning on it and he was rolling a cigarette and then he licked the paper and sealed it up and it was just like it was like 
like James Dean was standing there in the parking lot. I don't know. It was just, there was an attraction. And I got to know him after a while, and he, he said, do you want to go for a ride? And I said, yeah. And got on the back of his motorcycle, and, and we rode around uh, the area, um, country roads and so forth, and what fun that is. I don't know if you've been on a motorcycle, but it's delightful. Um, I'd read a book in high school called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is all about the merits of motorcycle riding versus car riding because you can smell the environment that you're riding through and you can feel the temperature change as you climb or go down into a valley. And um, It's a very romantic book about motorcycle riding. So here I was riding on this motorcycle and we did that more and more. You know, go for a motorcycle ride, maybe ride to some small town and get lunch or something and then come back. And over time, we became a couple. And each time we got on the motorcycle, he would say, Elizabeth, one day we're going to get in an accident. Not today, though. But we will get in an accident. And I think he wanted to impart to me the inherent danger of motorcycle riding. That, yeah, you can smell the environment and you can feel the temperature of the air and you can do that because there's nothing around you <laughs> to protect you in case a car collides with you or, or you lose control of the motorcycle and hit the pavement. And I appreciated that. <clears throat> he wanted me to, he wanted to make sure I complied you know, that this, that I was not um, foolish about it. So he, we rode the motorcycle and eventually he started to give me motorcycle riding lessons. He taught me how to operate the motorcycle and that was, that was fun as well. But the motorcycle he had wasn't the best. Wasn't the best, uh, you know, and he didn't have a lot of money. And there were some things he needed to fix like the ignition. And so the way he started a motorcycle was to hotwire it each time. He'd have to take one wire from one place and one from another, and that would, you know, start the engine up, the motor up, which isn't too bad. You know, it works. And one day we decided to go to Denny's for old time's sake. Denny's is, you know, Denny's, right? And we drank a bunch of coffee and ate some food and we decide that we want a free meal. And so we decide to dine and dash. Now this is thrilling for me because up until this point, you know, I've been the good girl. Now I'm hanging out with this guy that smokes cigarettes. Oh, it's so naughty. And he rides a motorcycle. My dad is so upset about that. And now he's suggesting that we don't pay. This is cool and thrilling. And it gets the heart rate up. And I say, okay. He's like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave first to go out and start the motorcycle because it takes a minute. <laughs> Once I'm out there, I'll give you the high sign, and then you come out, and we'll leave. I said, okay. And so he went outside. I waited. I looked out the window. He gave me the thumbs up. And so I looked around, I didn't see a waitress in sight, and I left. 
and I got on the back, and as I got on the back, his engine roared to life, and we left the parking lot and zoomed down the road. We rode down the road and decided better to get off main streets because we were certain the cops were probably after us. So we took a left and uh, went down a side street that turned into a bit of a country road. Started off as four lanes and then two lanes and then it was sort of a lane. And it was dark. And we rode down this country road and then I was flying. I was tumbling like an acrobat, head over heels. And then I was looking up at the sky, flat on my back in the middle of the road. And I didn't know what had happened. And I laid there and just took in the night sky. And then I heard a voice, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, are you okay? Yeah, I answered. And then I, into my vision came my friend. He said, are you okay? And he looked down at me and he looked very concerned. And I said, what happened? He said, we were in an accident. I said, we were in an accident? He said, yes. I said, what happened? And he said, we hit a deer. I said, we hit a deer. And then I, my concern was for the deer. Where's the deer? Did we hurt the deer? Yes, we hurt the deer. Well, we have to help the deer. And he said, well, we can do that. But right now, I need you to get out of the road. Can you get up? Can you walk? OK, I said. You really need to get out of the road. And I kept thinking I would get up. And then I realized I didn't really want to get up, or I couldn't get up, or I was probably in shock. And so I said, do you think you could carry me out of the road? He said, yeah, I can do that. And so he picked me up and carried me over to the side of the road. And we sat there, and I thought about the deer, and then I started to cry. The deer was still alive. We could see it in the distance, staggering, its hip dislocated from its body. We could also see the motorcycle further up where the forks that hold the front wheel were pointing in the wrong direction. And I could also feel my helmet was still on. It was one of those half helmets. And I took the helmet off and the inside uh, support foam had come loose and there was a big dent in it. But there wasn't a big dent in my head. The helmet had worked. And I had been wearing an old second-hand suede men's sports coat. They say leather is the best thing to wear when you ride a motorcycle. Now, I didn't have a proper leather jacket, but I had this on. And the elbows were ripped, but I wasn't. 
So we assessed our injuries and learned that we were very lucky. And just then some people came out into the road and asked us if we were okay. And we said, yes, and what happened? We hit a deer. Where's the deer? Oh, it's that way. And they call back and they say, hey, Sue, you wanted to learn about butchering, right? Well, come on, now's the time. And out comes presumably Sue and another man and they have a big hunting knife and they are, go out and they find the deer and they kill the deer and they bring the deer back to the house where they've invited us to come and we're sitting in their living room and they're checking us for injuries. And I learned that they're squatters. They're those hippies, those people that think are just terrible people. But here they were giving us first aid, checking our wounds they found blood on my skirts, and they were concerned that I was in shock and didn't know that I was really injured. But we learned that that was from my friend's hands. He had what's called road rash on his hands, his palms. And when he had picked me up, that had gotten on my skirt. Here were these people, though, out in the middle of the country. They helped us, and they butchered a deer. I was a vegetarian at the time. I was a bit mortified. They'd strung the deer up and had a little tarp laid out, and the deer was looking at me. And they gave us a ride home in their VW bus. My friend said, we got in an accident, didn't we? I said, yeah. He said, but you know what? I said, what? He said, we're all right. We're all right. I said, yeah. It is incredible how you can, on the spur of a moment, pick a story out of your life and experience and package it in, in such a way to make it compelling and convey so many different I don't want to use the word lessons. That makes it sound too, you know, um, <laughs> teachy. teachy. But but conveys so many emotions and themes and takeaways and and just impressive. Um, I could have added, I'd been seeking danger and I'd found it. <laughs> 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 well, um, what advice would you give to? aspiring storytellers or people who are just looking to share experiences like you do, um, what's, I don't know, what's step number one to, to, to doing what you just did? I guess step number one, step number one would be uh, think about a time in your life that you're not proud of or that you are embarrassed by or any strong emotion. Those are the stories that are most compelling to people to listen to because those are the unspoken stories that we hold inside and keep hidden. And you know, if you can go ahead and allow your vulnerability to be there and share something like that, you'll be rewarded you will have shared it, given some of it away, 
and the audience will be relieved to know they weren't the only ones, you know, stupid enough to go to Denny's on a motorcycle that had to be hot-wired with some guy, you know, or what have you. But yeah, a significant, a significant event in your life that, that has a strong emotion. Maybe it is pride, something you're very proud of, you know, or um, love. Any of the big ones, anger, you know, wrath. A time when you really felt that particular feeling that will help you know it's a significant moment. And then to just be honest. There's no reason for you to change the details to claim something was different than how it was. Honesty is compelling. And not be afraid to falter. You know, not everyone's a born public speaker. But it's okay to pause and to think for a minute, wait, oh, I forgot to tell you we had green jello that day. That's important, you know. It's okay. Because, yeah. Oh, but also good storytelling. You don't want to give the good stuff away right off. I didn't start the story and say, let me tell you about the time we hit a deer on the motorcycle. You want to build up some context and, and uh, so you can build up to it. Yeah. Like with jokes, you don't want to give the punchline away too soon. People that are terrible at telling jokes, they do that all the time. <laughs> yes, me included. <laughs> now, it's, I, I feel like doing that too, you almost help people, you're guiding them to convey kind of the what you want to convey instead of, you know, helping them discover it on their own rather than, yeah, giving it away too early. Um, yeah. A storyteller is a manipulator. You know, you can shape the story however you want. I'm not saying they're a liar. Right. That's a euphemism, though, for storytelling. People will say, are you telling me stories? That's interesting. I mean, are you lying? Are you fibbing? Is that fish getting really big? Right. <laughs> So, um, I don't know. So, um, make sure we, we get this in there. Um, so people who are interested in connecting, you know, with you or what you do, um, I know there's the, the podcast, um, how can they, you know, connect to kind of your, you as a professional or your, your events? I mean, well, firstly, they could go to my website, which is professionaltalker.com. They can also check out the Olympia pop rock site. Uh, where the Story Only podcast is broadcast from. I think those are the those main are the two ways. big ones. Yeah, those are the big ones. Yeah, and if, if you ever find yourself... I'm in the phone book. You can call me. Oh, I <laughs> occasionally get those on my doorstep and then do something with them. I'm not really sure where they go. Mm. Um, might be a place called Recycle Bin. Might, it probably, might yeah. <laughs> probably is. When I was a kid, we used them as booster seats. There you go. <laughs> There you go. Although there, I have to say there there are occasions when I when I need a fence repaired or something that I find myself searching for that phone book, um, once a year or so. Right. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking about phone books and how we don't use them anymore. People have the internet. When I grew up, I'm lucky that I'm of an age where I got to experience no internet and now internet, so I get to compare and contrast. And at the same time, 
for some reason, I think the more technology we have, the less an archaic art form like storytelling would be interesting. But that's not what's happening. People are still interested in an ordinary storytelled orally. They don't need to see digital animation to be entertained. You know, I mean, people like that too, but I think that's nice. It's interesting that, yeah, despite the fact that we have all this innovative technology and ways to be entertained and, and to enrich ourselves, going to a live storytelling event is still deeply satisfying. Or maybe even more deeply satisfying yeah. as you seek out those human connections. Right. Maybe that's it. It's so different from what people are used to experiencing today. They had no idea. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I think it's a good place to, to wrap up. All right. I hope you all found that conversation as fun to listen to as I had recording it. If you did enjoy this episode, the very first Stories from Everyday podcast, please feel free to download and listen to the rest. I hope to keep a regular upload schedule. However, the episodes are contingent on other people's schedules as well as mine. And as I said, this is just a side project for me at the moment. I still have my day job, which takes quite some time. But as I find more people willing to share with us all, and I can make my schedule work, I'll edit and upload their conversations for you all to enjoy. Oh yeah, and we have a website. Feel free to check out storiesfromeveryday.com for more details on each of the episodes. Feedback and constructive criticism are absolutely appreciated. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>